This is Christian Knutson and Allison Markowski with your local news, coming to you from the live from the WORT studios in beautiful downtown Madison. Here are tonight's headlines. Former Wisconsin Supreme Court Justice Michael Gableman says that he has signed a new contract with Republican Assembly Speaker Robin Voss to continue inquiries into the 2020 presidential election. The Wisconsin State Journal reports that the contract runs to April 30th and does not include any additional funding except to cover any legal battles. The probe has already cost state taxpayers $676,000 since it was started last summer. Gableman's original contract expired at the end of last year, with his position with the government being in limbo ever since. This new contract was revealed during a court hearing earlier today, while Gableman's attorney, James Bopp, provided oral arguments for an unrelated case. That case? An open records request by the liberal watchdog group American Oversight. That case ended with a Dane County judge ruling that Voss and Gableman must release over 700 pages of records. While Gableman argued that releasing the documents could jeopardize the probe, the judge ruled that nothing in the documents was harmful to that project and ordered the records to be released. Legislative Republicans quickly gaveled in and out earlier today, putting an end to Governor Tony Evers' special session to discuss what to do with the state's budget surplus. The Associated Press reports that Republican leadership in both the state Senate and Assembly quickly ended both sessions without any debate or votes. Evers announced his plan to call the special session during his State of the State address last month, even though Republicans have repeatedly indicated that they do not plan to address the $3.8 billion surplus until next year. With the end of today's short session, Republicans have effectively killed Evers' plan to use the surplus to send all Wisconsin taxpayers a $150 rebate. The La Crosse-based Dairyland Power Cooperative is exploring the use of nuclear power, reports Wisconsin Public Radio. The company has entered into an agreement with the small-scale nuclear reactor company New Scale Power to explore the possibilities of nuclear power in Wisconsin. Dairyland Power Cooperative is the state's second largest utility company. It says the agreement is part of a plan to move away from fossil fuels such as coal and natural gas, which make up around 50 to 75% of its power generation in winter. Dairyland says there is no current timeline to develop a nuclear power source here in Wisconsin and that the company is currently exploring its options. The Madison Metropolitan School District has started a fourth school renaming process in the last three years, as it begins to take new name proposals for Jefferson Middle School, reports the Capital Times. Both parents and school employees raised concerns about the school name last month and requested that the school board consider a name change at their school board meeting last week. Jefferson Middle School is named after Thomas Jefferson, who owned hundreds of slaves on his plantation. Name proposals are being accepted until April 8th on the Madison School District's website. And now for today's pandemic numbers. There were 367 confirmed COVID-19 cases reported across the state yesterday. That brings the seven-day average in Wisconsin to 435 cases per day over the past week. Additionally, there were no new deaths from the virus reported yesterday in Wisconsin. Here in Dane County, there were 40 confirmed cases of the virus reported yesterday, while a total of 37 people are still hospitalized. 
And those were your local news headlines. We turn now to two special guests in the studio, Nicholas and Jonah, who want to tell you a little something about the WORT Winter Pledge Drive. Hey, Allison, thanks so much. You know what, folks? I came to you a little over 10 minutes ago in our in our last pledge break with a request with just three minutes to go at 6.57. We had hit half of our of our donation goal for the hour. And you know what? With, with three minutes remaining, barely cutting it in under the wire, y'all came through. We hit our goal for the five to six o'clock Democracy Now! hour. We got two donations. We got two donations in the course of like three to five minutes, one of which might have come in just a little over six o'clock, but we're counting it towards the Democracy Now! quota. I can't believe it. I am so happy. Uh, Nicholas, who, who do we got? Who do we got to thank today? We have Lisa Johnson to thank. Hi, Lisa. She said hello to me. Um, her favorite shows are Democracy Now! A Public Affair, as well as Mud Acres, the Chris Powers show at 9 a.m. on Friday. As it happens, um, Lisa Johnson's one of her favorite shows is A Public Affair, and we also have S.D. Dinar to, th- yeah, to thank. Yeah, S.D. Dinar was one of our donors. Uh, if For those of you who are fans of A Public Affair, S.D. is the host of the Friday A Public Affair program. S.D., thanks so much for supporting us. Thanks to everybody who supported us this last hour. Your support makes what we do here at WORT possible from A Public Affair to the 6 o'clock news to Democracy Now! and all the music shows you love. Let's give it out one more time. Nicholas, how can people donate if they want to support us? Support us by calling us at 608-256-2001, extension number one. That's 608-256-2001. You can also go to wortfm.org and click the big orange donate button on the top of your screen. It is easy as one, two, three takes you just a few minutes out of your evening. Now, we might have hit our goal for the last hour, but you know, we're in the middle of our pledge drive. Pledge drive is a series of goals. We got another goal we want to hit for the six o'clock news. We're looking for four new donations before seven o'clock this evening. Help us hit our new goal. Help us keep the news operation here at WORT up and running. We've got so much for you this hour, so much that your financial support made possible from that challenge to the county's future mask mandates. Uh, we got we got news about Central Hispano. We got Cardinal Call Wildlife Weekly and Radio Astronomy in the back half. Literally, literally breaking news from the streets of Madison to the deepest of interstellar space. We have it all covered for you here on WRT, folks. Now, I dare you to find me one other news outlet that has as wide a coverage area as the streets of Madison to deep space. I'm willing to bet you can't find it. And you know what? Once again, your support makes all of those programs we do possible. Number to call to donate. Once again, 608 256 2001 extension one. You can also donate online at wortfm.org. Big orange banner right at the top. We're looking for four pledges for this hour. Help us hit our goal once again. Help help Nick and I go two for two for our for our pledge drive wrapping shift uh, this evening. You know, once again, your support makes what we do possible. News is expensive. Help us be a part of a uh, you know. Help us. Uh, cover the issues you care about. Nicholas, I'm running out of things to say, surprisingly. Surprisingly. Take me so, from there. Why you support yes. WRT? How we should how you should support by calling 608-256-2001 extension number 1. All of the programs you're hearing are made possible by all of our dedicated volunteers and as well as your support. Back to you, Allison. 
Earlier today, the Wisconsin Supreme Court heard oral arguments to decide if Dane County's Public Health Department was within its power to issue emergency health orders in response to COVID-19. WORT producer Nate Wegehout has more. The case was brought forward by the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, a conservative legal firm on behalf of a group of Dane County residents who say the emergency orders restrictions on youth sports had a negative impact on their families and businesses. The lawsuit is the latest in a year and a half long battle by Will to fight mask mandates in Dane County. Will argues that Public Health Madison Dane County's director Janelle Heinrich did not have the authority to issue enforceable public health guidelines such as mask mandates and limits on indoor gatherings by herself. Instead, says Will, that decision needs to come from the appropriate legislative body. In this case, the Dane County Board. Luke Berg is the deputy counsel with Will. He says that the case is about limiting the power of local officials so they cannot make sweeping changes outside of a legislative body. Uh, well, we represent multiple uh, people and businesses who live in Dane County, and it is a challenge to the authority of the local health official to issue sweeping restrictions uh, during COVID. Our position is that uh, neither state law nor the Constitution permit local health officials to unilaterally dictate conduct in this way. Will originally filed this lawsuit in August of last year as Dane County reinstated their indoor mask mandate as COVID cases ramped up. Will had attempted to move the case straight to the Supreme Court, but the case was handed to a lower court first. That lower court sided with the county and allowed the mask mandate to stand. Today's lawsuit is not the first lawsuit regarding local mask mandates filed by Will. They had filed a similar lawsuit in November of 2020, but the state Supreme Court voted not to take up the case in a 4-3 vote. The argument boils down to what is known as non-delegation doctrine, a favorite of conservative legal theorists. It postulates that only lawmakers can make legislative decisions and, importantly, cannot delegate that decision-making power to administrative agencies. In this case, Will argues that public health ordinances are considered legislation. Critics say the legal theory would undo much of the administrative workings of the government. At today's oral arguments, Berg says that the Public Health Madison-Dane County should have never been authorized by the county to make these decisions. Our argument is that the problem lies in the ordinance because the statute doesn't authorize this and the ordinance attempts to convert that power into the police power. But if this court concludes that the statute itself does allow this broad of a power by local health officials, then that is the non-delegation problem. Carlos Pombion is interim counsel for Dane County. He says that the non-delegation doctrine only applies to state law, and even then it has many barriers it has to face. It is a novel theory. Um, I think in today's other arguments, they were the first, they were um, quite candid that it is sort of a new theory that they're trying to advance in, insofar as they want it to apply to local government. Um, and I guess that's, if you were to ask me what's the crux of the issue, I think that's it right there is they are trying to shoehorn this non-litigation doctrine theory that up in, that the Wisconsin's case law has demonstrated really only applies to the state, at the state level. What they are trying to do is somehow extrapolate that argument into a forum that really doesn't quite fit in the same way, um, that being, you know, the county board. 
and the county board's authority with regards to these local health orders than the ordinance had passed. Pabion says that not only did Heinrich act in a legal way, but she acted in a way that was needed for someone in her position. Well, quite frankly, I believe that the, the law provides that we can and in some ways that we should. Um, this was obviously a very uh, unique and very um, disturbing kind of pandemic in the sense that it came you know, out of nowhere. It went through this whole country and it impacted Dane County, you know, very seriously. And we needed to take every measure that we, we could that was reasonable and necessary under law. So, I mean, in short, I believe that the law provides for our local health officer through the Board of Health and through our county ordinances to take take these measures, to move forward with these measures in order to protect the public. The case is still going forward despite Dane County's indoor mask mandate ending earlier this month. Berg says that there were two reasons why Will is continuing to push the lawsuit. Well, for two reasons. One of our clients is the dance studio, a leap above, that has a pending enforcement action against it based on order number 10, which was by far the most egregious of all of them. The case is still live as to a leap above because Dane County has not dropped that enforcement action. Uh, and then second, the health department was continuing to issue orders until a week ago uh, and the ordinance is still in place. So they could begin to issue orders again. And so uh, we're asking the court to declare that the ordinance is illegal and that delegating this much power to the local health official Uh, violates the Constitution. Public Health Madison-Dane County declined to comment due to the lawsuit still being active. A decision on the case is expected to come this summer. Reporting for WORT News, I'm Nate Wuggehout. The case was brought forward by the Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty, a conservative legal firm on behalf of a group of Dane County residents who say the emergency orders restrictions on youth sports Twelve days ago, Governor Tony Evers announced more than $20 million for community development projects in Madison and Dane County. One recipient is a new building for the local community nonprofit Centro Hispano. For more, here's WORT reporter Heron Splinter. Centro Hispano was started in 1983 to help settle Cuban refugees in the Madison area. Within the next 20 years, they expanded to providing education, mental health, and employment programs for Madison's Latino community. Now, nearly 40 years later, the organization offers community events, high school support services, scholarships, and varied career programs. They have done all this through development campaigns. Now, Centro Hispano is getting ready to expand. Here's the director of Centro Hispano, Karen Caller. We do family-centered holistic programming, that focuses on youth, on their families, and also engaging the community so we can have vibrant neighborhoods. The organization is getting over $4 million from the state, a part of a neighborhood investment grant announced by Governor Evers at the end of February. That money will be used for a new facility in South Madison, right around the block from their current location. The city of Madison will swap land with Centro Hispano taking the old location and placing the new building right between the South District Madison Police Department and Hughes Park. The South Bus Transfer Point is also on the block, which makes for continued easy bus access. According to the newest census data, 7% of Madison residents are estimated to be Hispanic or Latino. According to Central Hispano, most of the community lives in or near the Burr Oaks neighborhood. Keeping the location of the new facility keeps Centro Hispano close to those who it serves. 
So I just feel like this is the next step in the story for Centro and the story for what we do in, in Dane County. And I think with everything that's happening in South Madison, it's, it's crucial to have an entity that's going to lend the voice of our community to all of those developments that are going on that are going to really be transformational for the city. Through the Neighborhood Investment Fund grant program, other Dane County organizations are getting funded too. The Bayview Foundation will get $2 million towards its redevelopment project, expanding and updating its campus to include 200 more low-income residents. Meanwhile, the Urban League of Greater Madison's Black Business Hub and the new Center for Black Excellence and Culture will share a nearly $15 million grant to enhance economic, social, and cultural opportunities. For WORT News, I'm Heron Splinter. Centro Hispano was started in 1983 to help settle Cuban refugees. Over the weekend, the family of Tony Robinson gathered again to call for justice, seven years after he was shot and killed by a Madison police officer in 2015. WORT reporter Greg Jaboski has the story. This past Sunday, the Wilmar Community Center on Jennifer Street in East Madison was packed with those remembering the life of Tony Robinson with art, poetry, music, lots of food, and calls for justice. Sunday, March 6th, was the seventh anniversary of the 2015 shooting death of 19-year-old Tony Robinson by Madison City Police Officer Matthew Kenny. The unarmed Robinson was shot seven times at Robinson's Williamson Street residence. This was the second on-duty shooting death attributed to Kenny. Then, after the three-hour celebration of life, cars and marchers left the Wilmar Center to pack the streets of East Madison, chanting and continuing slowly to the house on Williamson Street where Robinson was shot dead in 2015. Robinson's family and local justice activists continued to demand that Kenny be removed from the Madison Police Department and that the case remain open, citing discrepancies in Kenny's sworn statements about the shooting. Among the speakers on Sunday was Tony Robinson's grandmother, Sharon Irwin, who promised that the fight for justice for Tony would not die. These streets are only here to make you understand we are still here. Yeah. We haven't gone anywhere. That was Sharon Irwin, Tony Robinson's grandmother, speaking Sunday evening on the seventh anniversary of her grandson's killing by Madison police officer Matthew Kenny. The action continued at the site of Robinson's killing until 6.38 p.m., the anniversary of the time of his death. For the 6 o'clock news, I'm Greg Jabosky. Back up! Back up! We want freedom! 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 It's now 6.24 p.m., and you're listening to the live local news here on WORT. We are now going to check in with Nicholas and Jonah to hear the news from how the pledge drive's going. Allison, the pledge drive is going fantastic. Let me tell you why we have hit our halfway mark for our donation goal for this six o'clock news hour. That's right. We got two donations uh, within mere seconds of each other on the top half of our broadcast. We have a donation from John and Madison. John and Madison, Thank you so much. Your support makes what we do here possible. We also got a donation from Anonymous in Madison who says, wow, congratulations to the entire news crew for winning statewide awards today. You do great work. 
that reminds me, I haven't mentioned this since uh, Democracy Now! So for those of you who might just be joining us, I'm excited to announce that the WORT Local News Crew, we are finalists in the 2021 Milwaukee Press Club Excellence in Journalism Awards. We have eight different stories, coverage areas, what have you that we're finalists in. It is amazing. Now, the way the Milwaukee Press Club works is that, you know, no matter where we wind up, we are guaranteed to get gold, silver, or bronze in any one of those categories. And you know what? Those awards, the, the, those, those awards we consistently win year after year, those would not be possible without your financial support reporting. It's an expensive, expensive venture, and it wouldn't be possible without the community support. We get every single pledge drive. Nicholas, Tell me a little bit more about how people can support us here at the WORT News Crew. Please support us by calling 608-256-2001, then clicking on extension 1. In order to donate by phone, if you prefer using the internet these days, you can donate at wortfm.org. Big orange donate. Big orange donate banner. Banner? Can't miss button. it. I'm not sure. I think it's a banner, you it's said. A, it's a banner that simultaneously functions as a button. You can click on that banner and donate really easily. Takes go check it out. a few minutes. It's a beautiful website, beautiful donate button. You can go and see our features from past shows if you ha- happen to miss the program. Go see the schedule for what's coming up next. And that's again, 608-256-2001. And you know, I just got to stress, you know, those folks donated during the six o'clock news hour, uh, at least one of them to support the news here we do here at WORT. I have to assume the other one supports it as well. But your support is for more than just the news crew here. Our entire music operation also needs your financial support. Nicholas, do you have any particular favorites when it comes to the music programming we got here at WORT? What, what do you what do you tune too many, into? Too many to count, but I'll give it a try. I like Los Madrugadores on Saturday morning, followed by Soul Sessions, followed by several jazz programs. You have your Mud Acres, which I think is a bluegrass program. You have Back to the Country Tuesday mornings, mm-hmm. 8 o'clock Buzz. It's a bit of a talk program, a bit of a music program. You also have Something Wonderful with the electronic music. Um, I just heard for the first time at Sunday at 11 p.m. There's a noise album or noise music. I th- Back to you, Joda. Yeah, back to me. You know what? I got to say, I've been part of the WRT family for more than two years at this point, and every day I discover something new about the station. We got to cut it back to the 6 o'clock local news once again. The number to call is 608-256-2001, extension 1. Back to y'all. You're listening to local news by local people here on WORT 89.9 FM. Stay with us. We Here's what we have lined up for the second half of the show. Cardinal Call breaks down the latest COVID-19 guidelines on the UW-Madison campus. Wildlife Weekly follows a resurgence in avian influenza. And Radio Astronomy looks into the magnetic nature of black holes. But for now, we'll take a quick break, and then we'll check in on some world headlines. We'll be back in a flash. The time is now 6.32, and you're listening to the local news on WORT 89.9 FM, Madison. I'm Allison Markoski, here with my co-host, Christian Knutson. 
Thanks for joining us. Every Tuesday, we check in with the editorial staff over at the Daily Cardinal, one of UW-Madison's student newspapers, to learn the latest news from campus. On this week's Cardinal Call, producer Hope Carnop spoke with news editor Allison Stecker about a multitude of changes coming to UW-Madison's COVID response policies. So overall, the ASM leaders were very pleased with how the meeting went because both sides were really receptive, and I think they came to a lot of um, amicable compromises, and everyone was respectful and receptive on either side. Hello and welcome to The Cardinal Call, your weekly dose of news coming out of the UW-Madison campus from the Daily Cardinal student newspaper. I'm producer Hope Carnup. UW-Madison's mass mandate will expire after March 11th, this coming Friday. Next week is spring break, and when students return, they will no longer have to wear masks in indoor settings. I'm joined today by campus news editor Ali Stecker to talk about upcoming changes to COVID-19 protocols on campus and how ASM student government has proposed alterations. Thanks for joining us, Allie. Yeah, thanks for having me. So it's been a few weeks since UW-Madison announced that they will drop the mask mandate. What are some of the different reactions that you've been hearing from students in classes or in other situations? Um, Yeah, so in my gender and women's studies class, I know that there have been a lot of concerns just about like accessibility on campus and students feeling comfortable showing up to class without masks and how that could be like a barrier for some students with like just how they feel safety wise or just public health wise. And I know some of my professors as well have expressed concerns about um, they're not being masked in their classrooms. And I know some have sent out surveys with like what students prefer, whether, whether that be moving class online or doing hybrid, or if everyone comes to it communal consensus to wear masks. ASM discussed a lot of these types of issues with a lot of like student organizations on campus. And I think overall, a lot of people were kind of shocked that the mandate would be ending before spring break and not wait like a few weeks once everyone comes back out of fear of another surge. But I know that the shared governance chair, Reese Bailey and Adrian Lampron Um, For ASM, their meeting with the chancellor went really well, and they were really happy that she sat down with them, and she was really receptive and responsive to a lot of their advocacy, and they think that they made a lot of good compromise um, with a lot of the requests they put in, so hopefully students will be pleased with what comes around. Yeah, so you reported that ASM student government met with UW-Madison leadership to discuss proposed alterations to these COVID policies. What were some of the main points that were discussed there and what were the results from those conversations? Uh, Yeah, so they had four main talking points. The first was a strong affirmation of students' rights to wear a mask at any time, and this includes an explicit statement that there will be no academic consequence for doing so. The next was to establish a shared governance process for students to apply for the ability to drop a class or withdraw from the university without financial or academic penalty due to health and safety concerns. The third was to establish a shared governance process for instructors, and that includes professors, TAs, lecturers, etc., to apply for COVID accommodations, including a mask mandate in their classrooms. And the last 
request was to provide physical air filters in all classrooms with improper ventilation as determined by FP&M air quality testing using central funding. So with a lot of those requests and the discussion with the chancellor, they came to a lot of compromises and a lot of those points were debated back and forth and both sides were very receptive to what the other one had to say. So I know that with the first alteration, the chancellor told ASM that if any students experience issues with professors, they should definitely report it, whether that rep- that professor is like forcing them to wear a mask or not, or telling them like, take your mask off if there are any issues like that, to so definitely report that. And for the second alteration about um, the shared governance process for professors, TAs, and lecturers to apply for COVID-19 accommodations, Blank said that professors can ask their students to mask, but they ultimately cannot implement mandates or really force the mask mandate. And in the meeting recap that ASM shared with me, the chancellor did clarify that accommodation requests are still available, but currently there have been no requests that have been filed since the mask mandate removal announcement was released. Um, The university actually had 40 accommodations requests in the fall and 20 in the spring, um, but those were kind of unclear who really filed those. And on the meeting recap, the chancellor did say that while a lot of professors or TAs or whomever can file these requests, Um, the individuals may not receive the exact accommodation listed on the initial request. And then for the third alteration about students withdrawing from the university, the university cannot make this a shared governance process just for privacy reasons. And um, the chancellor also mentioned that there's a graduated tuition refund if students choose to medically withdraw. And for the final request about the university purchasing physical air filters for classrooms, that was actually like flat out rejected because the chancellor noted that other schools have tried air filters and they found no major impact in large classrooms so the university will not be purchasing them. So overall the ASM leaders were very pleased with how the meeting went because both sides were really receptive and I think they came to a lot of um, amicable compromises and everyone was respectful and receptive on either side. You also talked with Shared Governance Chair Rees Bailey for an interview. What did he have to say about why these changes were being requested and why ASM kind of went about it this way? He just thinks that it was really important to make sure that every member of the campus community continued to like feel safe and able to show up to class and like get the education that they're paying for. And like part of that he noted was that ensuring that even if it's just one professor or one student that does not feel safe, it's still really important and significant that they can pursue their education. They can pursue their their job here on campus in a way that makes them feel accepted, included, and comfortable. He noted that he did feel confident that most students would see these policy suggestions that they brought, that ASM brought forward as reasonable. They're not asking for the mandate to be reinstated, but they're just asking for more flexibility around individuals with pre-existing conditions or just other individuals who have concerns with the public health. You reported that ASM didn't coordinate with faculty or departments on campus to form these suggestions, but were there other stakeholders involved in those discussions? Yeah, so I noted this in an updated version of the article. ASM, they did attend a meeting the week before the meeting with the chancellor with faculty and staff to actually coordinate safety goals and strategies. Um, So they didn't entirely not discuss the issue with the faculty, and they have been in contact with the United Faculty and Academic Staff throughout the pandemic to figure out what would be best and to hear out a lot of the opinions of the faculty and academic staff on campus. 
But then in addition to that, they, because they are predominantly like student based organization that does focus on a lot of student organizations and student voices, not to say they're not going to focus on faculty either. They did converse more with the leaders of the TAA, ACLU, and PAVE and other organizations on campus to gather information of the students because they are the representatives of the students on campus. But they definitely overall talk to a large range of stakeholders on campus that did include the faculty and staff. I think one big question that some students still have is whether their instructor can ask them or require them to wear a mask. So what does UW-Madison say about this specifically? Yeah, I think requirement-wise, as the chancellor noted in the meeting that I put into the article, um, professors cannot implement or require a mask mandate. They can ask, maybe be like, hey, like just out of safety of me and my family, like I go home and my mother lives with me or That's just one example I think she gave. I think they can ask politely for students to wear their mask, but they cannot force a student to wear one or not to wear one. Is there anything else you think listeners should know about your story or just the upcoming COVID-19 protocol changes in general? I think definitely watch out um, and read your emails before break. And when we come back from break, just to stay updated on what the university is going to release in regards to the mask mandate. And I think Do whatever you feel the most comfortable doing. I know it can be stressful and it can be hard for some students, but I definitely think if you are worried or like you have concerns, discuss it with your professors, discuss it with your TAs. Definitely make sure you are still getting the accessible education you came here to get and pursue. Great. Thank you so much for coming on the show, Allie. Yeah, thank you. That's all for our Cardinal Call this week. We'll catch you back here soon. Check out more news and stories at dailycardinal.com. This has been The Cardinal Call, created by student journalists at UW-Madison. We're going to check in now with Nicholas and Jonah to hear the news from the Pledge Drive. And boy, oh boy, do we have news. Thanks so much, Nick. Thanks so much, Christian. Nicholas, tell me, tell me where we're at with our with our goal for the uh, for the six o'clock hour. We have two more donations and one more pledge. Um, yes. All three are anonymous. We should know. That does not just meet our quota, our goal for the six o'clock news broadcast this evening. That blows us past our four donation goal for this hour. Thanks so much to those two anonymous donors and one anonymous pledger. Your support is incredible. It helps us do what we do here. You know, I want to I want to read this comment from one of our anonymous patrons who says the local news on WORT is fantastic. Congrats on the awards. A big shout out to all the news volunteers. Thank you for doing what you do. Thank Thank you anonymous for the oh man oh hang on hang on oh uh, oh we just got another donation just right now just as i was reading that out we have our sixth donation for the six o'clock news hour shouts out to robert from madison who just squeezed that in there right as i was talking out robert thanks so much for your financial support you all have uplifted my spirits today you help us make what we do possible you help support award-winning journalism now nicholas we might have hit our goal for the hour but but let's keep it coming let's keep it coming how
how call can people donate? 608, call us at 608-256-2001, extension number one. You can also go to wortfm.org. Both of those are great ways to donate. Just take a couple minutes to support these valuable programs that you that you love yeah and i should also add you know the wrt news team took home is taking home some awards from the milwaukee press club's 2021 awards for excellence i already highlighted that i want to give a shout out to the daily cardinal crew who also just absolutely dominated in this year's milwaukee press club awards they're taken home by my initial count more than a dozen in the various student categories including for audio so shouts to hope Carnop, shouts to everybody at the cardinal you know if you want to support them if you want to support us give us a call 608 562001 extension 1 donate online at wortfm.org won't take more than 2 minutes of your time now back to the news in 2013 a global pandemic for livestock started as avian influenza started spreading around the world it seemed to die down again in around 2017 but researchers say that the bird flu has been found in america once again on this week's Wildlife Weekly, feature contributor Jackie Sandberg explains what to do when finding a sick bird. Welcome to Wildlife Weekly. My name is Jackie Sandberg, and I'm the Wildlife Program Manager for the Dane County Humane Society here in Madison, Wisconsin. Each week we choose a topic related to wildlife rehabilitation or the environment, and today we'll be talking about the highly pathogenic avian influenza virus, which is currently acronymed as HPAI. And if you haven't heard about it yet, you probably want to have it in the back of your mind here pretty soon. This is not new. Avian bird flu is probably something you've heard about maybe in the news. Actually, it was around back in the 90s, 1996, it first emerged in China, and it caused a lot of large poultry outbreaks within those years and was a zoonotic disease because there were at least 18 human infections. That was the H5N1 bird flu, as a reminder, resurfaced in 2003, and then same thing happened where there were a number of outbreaks in the US and Canada between 2014 and 2015 as well. So we've had multiple outbreaks of some form of avian influenza, and guess what? It's back again. So 2022 marks the year that we have confirmed highly pathogenic avian influenza again in wild birds starting in South Carolina. So that was back in January. January 14th was the first press release that came out about it. And since then, it has now been documented traveling pretty far. So we've got, you know, January 18th, that was another one. And then February 9th, it was in a turkey flock in Indiana. Right now, it has moved all the way to Michigan and Iowa. So even as of a couple of days ago, South Dakota. So we know that it is very likely to transmit probably into the state of Wisconsin. And it's something that you need to be concerned about if you have backyard chickens, backyard poultry, if you work in the poultry industry, or if you work with wild birds. So for us, especially as wildlife rehabilitators, we are most concerned about our waterfowl species that can easily get this, but also any of our other galliform species. So that would be our turkeys and a number of game bird species. So, you know, for people that might go out hunting, that could be an issue. We do have a spring turkey hunt here in Wisconsin. And, you know, you should just be on the lookout for sick birds in your area. So as a general precaution, and you can look up any of this information on the APHIS website or the Wisconsin DNR has a really great section on wildlife diseases, including 
avian influenzas. So, you know, you should definitely avoid any sort of direct contact with wild birds, especially if they look like they're sick. So any wild bird can technically be infected with an avian flu. Um, and sometimes they won't even look like they're sick. So, you know, if you're in an area that is highly contaminated with feces from wild birds, um, such as an area where there's a large pigeon roost, for example, um, you know, that would be a place to take extra precautions. And obviously, if you're at high risk, similar to our COVID situation right now, this might be something to keep in mind if you're around birds often. If you have to handle wild birds like us, if you find something in your backyard, or if you're working with sick or dead poultry, really it's best to try to minimize your contact. You wear gloves, wash your hands, wash it really well. If you can, continue to wear a mask actually, because uh, believe it or not, you know, that's going to be something that we have to think about here because it can be a route of exposure. So it's rare, but infected birds shed the flu virus in their saliva, in their mucus, and in their feces. And so if the virus, or at least enough of it, gets into your eyes, your nose, your mouth, or if you inhale it enough, if you're going to have close or lengthy, you know, unprotected contact, that's where you might potentially be able to get it. Again, a zoonotic disease or a zoonotic virus is something that people can get that also crosses species boundaries. So that in this case would be birds. So, you know, it's definitely something to monitor. We have not yet found it detected in Wisconsin as of yet. Doesn't mean that it wouldn't, but keeping in mind that wild birds do often come into contact with your other species here in the poultry industry. And usually it's on accident or it's incidental, but it does cause really big, you know, uh, health department discussion because that's where we have to start talking about how do you contain it? How do you quarantine animals? What do you do with the sick animals? And knowing that it is transmitted so fast, uh, it's really important for health agencies to keep on top of this. So definitely contact the DNR, U.S. Fish and Wildlife, contact our Wildlife Center at 608-287-3235, and we can help point you in the right direction of what to do if you find a sick bird. Right now, we are most concerned with our waterfowl and raptor species, but it doesn't mean that any other bird couldn't technically get it. Oh, and also our, our game birds, so turkeys and galliforms. So thanks for listening. I hope you've learned a little bit about avian influenza. Be on the lookout, and please stay safe out there. And and continue to practice really good hygiene. Uh, this has been Wildlife Weekly. Thanks for listening on WORT. There are a lot of attractive aspects about space. And a gigantic magnetic field that helps define the universe, that is one of the strongest. On this week's Radio Astronomy, host Melissa Morris looks at magnetism in space and how it helps to create black holes. Think back to a science class where you played with small bar magnets. Perhaps you've seen what happens when a magnet is placed near a bunch of iron shavings, how the iron shifts to point along the lines that spiral away from the magnet. But have you ever seen this happen around a black hole? Welcome to Radio Astronomy, folks. My name is Melissa Morris, and today I'm going to talk to you about magnets in space and why they're so interesting and important. First, let's go back to thinking about a normal bar magnet with two different poles on either end. Now, imagine this image I brought up earlier of a magnet being placed 
apply some iron shavings. These shavings will align themselves along invisible lines that seemingly connect to the north and south poles of the magnet. These invisible lines are called magnetic field lines and are incredibly important. In fact, we can observe these magnetic field lines all across the universe. But before we get too crazy, let's think locally. Now, when I say local, I mean the planet Earth. Why Earth? Well, Earth is, in fact, a giant magnet. That's why compasses always point to the North Pole, because it's magnetized. That alone is pretty cool, but it gets even better. Every now and then, the sun undergoes large solar flares, which are coincidentally also caused by magnetic fields. These solar flares can send showers of charged particles off into space and occasionally straight towards us here on Earth. However, the Earth's magnetic field protects us from these charged particles interfering in our day-to-day -day lives. The reason this happens is because the charged particles move along the magnetic field lines, similar to how iron shavings will move along a bar magnet's magnetic field. Because these fields connect to the Earth's poles, the charged particles will be carried to the North Pole instead of showering a across the entire surface of the Earth. Now, let's move away from the Earth and take a look at our own sun, which has its own magnetic field that is much more complicated for a few different reasons. First off, the sun is a giant ball of really hot gas. This allows it to rotate at different rates across its surface. This means rotation near the sun's north and south poles is much faster than towards its equator. This difference in rotation rate causes the magnetic fields that weave throughout the sun's surface to be stretched out until they snap, causing their structure to change completely, looping in and out of the sun's surface, and occasionally carrying plasma along them in the form of huge arches that extend far outside of the sun's surface. Moving even further away from our own solar system, we can start to see even more magnetic fields in the universe in all kinds of forms. But how do we know these magnetic fields are even there? Well, remember when I was talking about how we can see material line up along magnetic field lines? It turns out that light kind of does something similar. When light is being influenced by magnetic fields, it is polarized, meaning it's oriented in the direction of the magnetic field. Using the power of radio telescopes, astronomers can observe the direction in which the light is polarized, thus revealing how the magnetic field is oriented. Understanding this structure of the magnetic field can help us understand some of the fundamental physics that we observe in our own universe, whether it's the physics behind how stars form or how supermassive black holes launch high-energy jets that can extend far outside of the galaxies they exist in. Perhaps you remember the exciting announcement from the Event Horizon Telescope a few years ago. They took the first ever picture of a supermassive black hole using a series of radio telescopes that, combined, is nearly as large as the Earth itself. Their efforts led to this groundbreaking black hole image that had never before been captured, but recently they've updated it to include polarized light around the black hole. By looking at this polarized light, they were able to see the structure of the magnetic fields in the disk surrounding the supermassive black hole. This disk funnels material onto the surface of the black hole, but it being magnetized can lead to some interesting physical phenomena. Further away from the black hole, they measured the magnetic field strength of the disk to be between 2 to 30 times as strong as the Earth's magnetic field. However, 
Closer to the black hole, the magnetic field becomes stronger and stronger until it actually repels some of the material from ever entering the black hole's event horizon. This process could turn out to be crucial to understanding black holes like this one. You see, some supermassive black holes that are consuming large amounts of material tend to expel long, high-energy jets of material that extend far outside of the galaxy in which these black holes exist. What exactly is causing these jets to be launched is still not fully understood. Although astronomers have long hypothesized it has something to do with magnetic fields. Now that I've discussed magnets from the size of your hand to the size of a black hole, you can see some of the ways in which magnetic fields permeate our universe. That's all for radio astronomy today, folks. This is Melissa Morris, and I'm wishing you a stellar week. And that does it for our show. Thanks for listening to WORT's live local news at 6 p.m. Your reporters tonight were Heron Splinter and Greg Jaboski. Special thanks to feature contributors Jackie Sandberg, the radio astronomy crew, and the editorial staff at the Daily Cardinal. Engineer Dave Lawrenson got the news on the air. Nate Weggehout produced this pod, this newscast. And Charlie Pittman is the news director at WORT. I'm your host, Christian Knudsen. Thank you to all of you who called in your pledge of support this hour. You make it happen. Thank you as well to our excellent fundraising crew tonight, Nicholas and Jonah. And I'm your host, Allison Markoski. Up next is Spanish language news with En Nuestro Patio. Oh, and Anonymous from Madison just pledged a few moments ago. They are a new donor, and they say, quote, Really glad you are here in Madison, a true asset. We are very glad to be here, and thank you so much, Anonymous. Have a good night.